Hey, it's Amy, and I'm popping into the feed right now to tell you that I believe we're creating something together here on Threshold. You, me, and the whole team that makes this show. We're making a meeting ground for people who want to think and feel and learn about this unbelievably fascinating and beautiful planet. It's a pretty special place in the audio landscape, but we need your support for it to grow and thrive. There are lots of ways you can help. You can make a donation and also make introductions. Mention the show to a friend or a coworker. Share an episode with your network. Your recommendation is how more people will find this community and join the conversation. Learn more about how you can help at thresholdpodcast.org. And thank you so much for listening. Hey, it's Amy. Wow, things are really crazy right now. All of us here at Threshold are sending you a big, socially distant hug wherever you are. We hope you're staying safe and healthy and sane. I'm happy to report that no one on our team has symptoms of the coronavirus so far. And since we work remotely anyway, we are all systems go here. We've begun to adapt to this new world that's unfolding around us in all kinds of ways. We're actually trying to think like an organism that's just been thrown into a new environment. And we have to be creative and nimble and willing to try new things. But at the same time, we're determined to hang on to our core threshold essence and to keep this show going. We've got some exciting plans in the works, which I'll share with you in just a bit. Make sure and sign up for our mailing list at thresholdpodcast.org. But today, let's just gather around the virtual bonfire and listen to a story. This is what humans do to get by, right? It's what we've always done since like forever. Think of all the crises our species has faced over the millennia. Imagine your prehistoric ancestors huddled together, doing the exact same thing we're doing right now. Listening to each other, feeling the pain and anxiety together, trying to make sense of an unpredictable world through story. I think stories are kind of magic, actually. Like, in this case, I originally conceived of this story you're about to hear as the very first episode of our second season about the Arctic. Early in the production process, I had it more or less done. But then, as I waded through the ocean of tape we'd gathered from eight different countries, it became harder to see exactly how and where this story fit in. And as it turns out, I'm so glad we waited to share it with you. Because this moment, this time of fear and isolation, confusion and uncertainty, this is the perfect moment for this story, I think. It's a story of sheltering in place from over a hundred years ago, and it's centered around one fascinating person, an Inupiaq woman named Ada Blackjack. She was born Ada Delatuck on May 10, 1898, in a small settlement near Nome, Alaska. Just a few months after she was born, gold was discovered near this little town, out on the Seward Peninsula, and the population of Nome went from 5,000 people to more than 12,000 in less than two years. There weren't any paved roads, there wasn't a sewer system, there wasn't safe drinking water. Tessa Hulls is a writer, visual artist, bicycle activist, and a whole lot more. 
She wrote a piece about Ada for Atlas Obscura, and I asked her to walk us through this story. And it was pretty dangerous in terms of fights breaking out. Um, and since most of the population were, you know, wild young men coming up to search for gold, it was um, definitely a, a pretty frontiersy place. The Alaskan gold rush? Yes, sir. I remember it just like it was yesterday. So this was the world Ada was born into, turbulent and full of change. Her father died when she was young, and her mother sent her to a Methodist missionary school. So she didn't learn traditional Inupiaq skills as a child. Instead, Ada was groomed to be a servant. And so that was when she learned English, and she learned about housekeeping and budgeting, um, and also was instructed in how to cook food suited for white people. In 1914, when she was just 16 years old, Ada got married. And she married a local dog musher whose name, I kid you not, was Jack Blackjack. Um, And so the two of them had three children, and two of them died. Her one surviving child was a son named Bennett. Ada, Jack, and Bennett lived an isolated life in the bush, 40 miles outside of Nome. Uh, Jack was a pretty terrible husband. He beat her, he mistreated her, and he actually abandoned her when the two of them were living on the Seward Peninsula. And so she ended up walking back to Nome because she had no other way of getting there to go back and rejoin her mother. And uh, Bennett, who at the time was five years old, he was too young to be able to walk the whole way. So when he got too tired on the 40-mile trip back, she would pick him up and carry him. This was 1921. Ada was just 23. She'd lost two children, survived an abusive marriage, and walked 40 miles through the wilderness with her young son. But that was just the beginning. So at that point, Ada had learned how to sew, and that's how she was making a living, is she was um, making survival gear for the men who were coming into town to mine. Ada was just barely scraping by when Bennett came down with tuberculosis. She didn't have the money to care for him. So with no other options available, she had to put him in an orphanage. She was a really devoted mother, so it destroyed her to have to do that. But she also recognized that she didn't have the resources to take care of him on her own. Um, And so at that point, when she put him in the orphanage, she swore that she was going to find a way to get enough money to bring him back out eventually and to take him home again. Enter Wilhelmir Stephenson. Born in Canada and educated in anthropology at Harvard, Stephenson was part of a coterie of men who became famous for their polar adventures in the early 20th century. In 1913, Stephenson organized his first major expedition into the Canadian Arctic. It went badly. Early into the trip, he abandoned one of his three ships, the Carluck, just before it became stuck in the ice. The drifting ice carried the ship off with 25 people on board, including an Inuit family with two young children. The group suffered through a hellish year. After drifting for four months, the ship sank. Some of the people on board, including the family, made their way to Wrangell Island, which is north of Siberia. They were eventually rescued there, but in total, 11 people died. Stephenson was criticized for many aspects of this fiasco, from planning mistakes to abandoning the ship. In fact, one of his peers, the famed Norwegian explorer Roald Amundsen, called Stephenson, quote, the greatest humbug alive. But this apparent carelessness with other people's lives didn't prevent Stephenson from finding backers for another expedition a few years later. His plan now was to return to Wrangell Island and claim it for the British crown. Britain had never expressed a desire for the island and didn't back Stephenson's plan, but he was not a man to be troubled by such details. 
Stephenson had this theory that it could be um, really useful as a sort of radar and aviation base. So he had sort of military designs for it, or he thought that it would be of tactical use. This time, Stephenson planned to stay home and instead recruited four young men to lead the trip. Three of them were Americans, one was Canadian, all were between 19 and 28 years old. In 1921, they arrived in Nome looking for a native seamstress who spoke English. Ada fit the bill. Uh, She heard that there was an expedition in town that was heading to Wrangell Island and that they were looking for Anubiat families to go with them as part of the expedition. Bennett was in the orphanage, and the money Ada was scraping together doing domestic work in Nome was never going to be enough to get him out. So she said yes. Several other Anupiak families were hired to go as well. But the day before they were scheduled to leave, all of them backed out. But not Ada. And so it ended up just being Ada. And she was really uncomfortable with the idea of being the only woman with four men. Um, But she knew that this was going to be her best chance of getting enough money to get Bennett out of the orphanage. And so despite her misgivings, she still went along. For her, it really was a financial calculus because she was going to be paid $50 a month. And so initially she was told that she would just be going for a year. And she figured, you know, I do this one year of work, I get all this money, I get my son back, and I can I can do this if it's just for a year. So on September 9th, 1921, they launched. Seven sled dogs, four men, one woman, and one other female presence. Yes, so the ship did have a cat, Victoria, on board. And um, at that point, it was pretty common for ships to have cats because they were considered to be good luck. So Victoria was also female. So it was four men, one woman, and a female cat. And the dogs. Stevenson had sold the men on the idea of what he called the friendly Arctic. He told them that once they got to Wrangell Island, the land would provide. And so even though the initial plan was for the expedition to go for a year, he only sent them with six months of supplies and basically told them, oh, you'll be able to hunt, you'll be able to trap, um, you, you won't have any trouble, your stores will be overflowing, so don't bother taking enough for a whole year. They sailed north, found Wrangell Island, and everything seemed to be going according to plan. At first there was plentiful game, so it looked like the promises of the friendly Arctic were going to pan out. But it certainly wasn't easy living, especially for Ada. She was terrified of polar bears, she had never used a gun, and she'd never been this far north. There's kind of this this racial assumption where, you know, I, I imagine that when the men were looking for Um, Native Alaskan families to bring along, even though Ada was pretty upfront about the fact that she hadn't been raised within the traditional knowledge of that culture, I'm sure they looked at her and thought, oh, that's an Eskimo. She must know how to survive in the wild, just because there is that kind of stereotype. Ada's education with the Methodist missionaries had separated her from her culture and left her no more prepared for the far north than the men were. But it had provided her with at least one very valuable tool. She could read and write. Yeah, she kept a diary. And actually, when she first signed on for the expedition, one of the things that she was issued by the men was one ever sharp pencil for being able to write down notes and letters. Her days were spent sewing survival gear and doing domestic tasks around the camp. 
And as often happens in field camp experiences, various tensions emerged. Ada went through periods of acute mental stress. There were arguments about the distribution of work, and it seems she developed an unrequited romantic interest in one of the men too. Some of the men responded to her with kindness, some with cruelty, but she survived. Finally, spring came, the light began to return, and with it, hope. Stephenson had promised to send a ship to pick them up in the summer, after the sea ice broke up. And indeed, a ship was sent. Yeah, and actually, one of my favorite facts of this story is that ship um, was called the Teddy Bear. (laughs) I just love the mental image of a a rescue ship called the Teddy Bear, and you see the Teddy Bear cresting the horizon. (laughs) (laughs) Totally big ears. Here it comes. So Ada and the men and the dogs and the cat sat on Wrangell Island, staring out into the sea, hoping to catch sight of the ship that would bring them home. The sun rose and set, their supplies diminished day by day, and they waited and waited and waited. We'll have more after this short break. My name is Mike Dimitrov, Manager of Art Initiatives for the Chicago Park District. Support for Threshold comes from Optimus Technologies. Optimus builds technology for diesel engines to operate on 100% biodiesel. We strive to make the Chicago Park District and the Chicago Lakefront the greenest and most sustainable place for our citizens, which is why we operate our fleet of vehicles on biodiesel. Using biodiesel reduces our carbon emissions by over 80%. To learn more, please visit b20club.org. Hey there, I'm Nick Mott, one of the folks who makes Threshold. If you've listened to the show since the beginning, you've heard us talking about bison and permafrost and polar bears. But there's so much that goes into the podcast that never makes it on the air. For every hour we spend in the field, we spend days or even weeks in the studio finding the right way to tell these stories. That means swimming through a volume of tape that feels like it could fill the Arctic Ocean, pouring over draft after draft until we get things just right, sleepless nights checking endless facts. And all this work couldn't happen without your support. The best way to help us keep doing what we're doing is to subscribe to our show. Just search for Threshold wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Threshold. I'm Amy Martin, and we're exploring the story of Ada Blackjack, told to us by writer Tessa Holes. It's late summer 1922, and Ada has been living on Wrangell Island, north of Siberia, for almost a year, with four men, seven sled dogs, and a cat named Victoria. A ship called the Teddy Bear is on its way to pick them up, but it's taking a really long time. You're waiting and waiting every day, and... Basically, nothing happens. Mm-hmm. And as you're watching and waiting, you're you're seeing the weather window literally close because you're seeing the ice closing in, and you're watching the water become unnavigable. So you kind of have this this ominous set of environmental markers where you you really are seeing that you're becoming trapped again. The teddy bear never arrived. 
An early freeze began to set in as the ship sailed north to Wrangell Island and it was forced to turn back or risk getting trapped in the ice like the Carluck. So Ada and the rest of the group were left alone on Wrangell Island to face another winter unprepared. This is when it started to become clear that the Arctic was not so friendly after all. The game on the small island had dried up, and the group entered the fall of 1922 with a shortage of food and an abundance of uncertainty. By January, they were at a breaking point. So by the beginning of 1923, the situation had um, turned pretty dire. They knew that they were starving and um, that there was no way that their stores were going to be able to last. One of the men, named Lorne Knight, had fallen ill. They didn't know it at the time, but he had scurvy. All they knew was he needed help or he was going to die. With the sea around them frozen solid, the men thought they might have a chance to make it to Russia by dog sled and then go on to Nome from there. Lorne was too weak to go. And so the three other men set off with a dog sled team. Ada was left to care for Lorne. And the other three men? Uh, They were never seen again. So as far as anyone knows, they died out there. And there have been a couple finds where people thought that maybe it was signs of their lost expedition, but it's never been conclusively proven. Back on Wrangell Island, Ada had her work cut out for her. She was definitely showing signs of starvation herself, but basically once the men left, um, she just stepped up to the occasion in a really big way. So even though she hadn't been raised with any knowledge of hunting or trapping, she realized that if they were going to survive, she was going to need to learn to do everything. Winter slowly gave way to spring, but Lorne Knight's condition did not improve. Everything was up to Ada. There's some really interesting anecdotes about her basically learning to become a badass, where she knew that she needed to learn how to shoot, and so she set up a series of targets of empty cans and went out and taught herself how to use the guns. And because she was such a small woman, she was, you know, 100 pounds and less than 5 feet tall, she had a really hard time with the recoil of the guns, and so she built herself um, driftwood shooting props, essentially, so that she could rest the guns on something while she shot. And she would practice until she was able to shoot birds that way, and she basically taught herself how to survive. One of the men had taken a typewriter to the island, and Ada began to use it. One day she wrote, If anything happened to me and my death is known, please take everything to Bennett that has belonged to me. I don't know how much I would be glad to get back to folks. And at one point in her journal, she writes about how she had taken the place of four men um, in addition to suddenly becoming the nursemaid for this man, Knight, who couldn't get out of his sleeping bag. Ada cared for him in the coldest, darkest days of winter and through their second spring. But on June 23rd, a day when the island would have been flooded with light, Lorne Knight died. Ada had kept him alive by herself for six months. He had died in his sleeping bag, and now Ada had a question, what to do with his body. She's in a permafrost landscape with wild animals all around, and she's small. So she barricaded him off with boxes um, so that wild animals wouldn't be able to eat his body, and then she moved into what they've been using as their storage shed, um, because she didn't want to, you know, be living with a corpse. 
And at that point, she built a driftwood platform above the shed so that she could see polar bears coming from far away. And that's the point where she kind of kicked into high gear in terms of she was the only one still alive. Um, Oh, except for Vic, the cat. I should mention that throughout this entire thing, she kept the cat alive. Um, So at this point, all the men had died, but she and Vic were kind of doing their thing. I mean, it really is an amazing story about reclamation of skills. Um, The men didn't bring a proper skin boat with them for hunting seals, and so she actually ended up building her own boat out of driftwood and canvas. And this is somebody who had absolutely no background in construction, um, but she was able to build a seaworthy boat so that she could hunt from the water. Tessa says Ada had always loved beautiful clothes, and so after she was alone, she began to sew herself a very elaborate reindeer parka. It's kind of hard to imagine how she found the time or the will to be creative in such an intensely scary and lonely situation, but Tessa says her diary reveals her steadfast determination to get back to Bennett. One of the things that she really writes about is the fact that she needed to get home to her son. And that was the whole reason that she'd gone on this expedition. And ultimately that was the impetus for her surviving is that she wasn't gonna leave Bennett alone. So she was a mother who just needed to get home to her son. Despite all the ways her trust had been broken in the past, Ada remained convinced that someone would come for her. And she was right. On August 20th, 1923, after two long years on the island, a rescue ship finally appeared. It was a schooner called Donaldson, and Ada met it wearing her new parka. She was 25 years old. She had been so sure that someone was gonna come save her, and someone did. There are some really amazing pictures of Ada on the rescue ship holding Vic in her lap, just calmly sitting on deck, you know, holding this cat who had been her only companion after all the men had died, um, making her way home to her son. When she returned to Nome, she was able to get Bennett out of the orphanage, and she took him to Seattle and then Los Angeles to get treatment for tuberculosis and other medical conditions. And it would be so nice to be able to tell you that they then lived happily ever after. Yeah, everyone wants this to be a happy story. And at first, um, she was getting a lot of international press attention. She was labeled the female Robinson Crusoe, and she was seen as being this, this amazing example of Arctic survival. But Ada didn't like to talk to the press. And when she did... Basically, all she would say was that she was a mother who needed to get home to her son and that she wasn't going to give up hope because of that. As the story unfolded in the press, Harold Noyce, the captain of the rescue ship, saw an opportunity. He was a protege of Stephenson's, and he knew that media attention was the bread and butter of Arctic explorers. Ada had turned over all of the journals from the expedition to him, and he used them to claim that he was privy to a sordid tale that cast her as the villain. He accused Ada of not caring for Lorne Knight properly and letting him die. And there was suspicion that he tore out the pages of Knight's diary that would have shown otherwise. 
There was actually an article that came out in 1924. Uh, the title was Spurned Eskimo Woman is Blamed for Arctic Death. And so the media started trying to spin her as being this callous woman who, you know, was in great health and fine when the ship arrived to save her. And so clearly she had not taken care of this dying man. and had just kind of been, you know, out for herself. With the smear campaign in full swing, Lorne Knight's family came to Ada's defense. They were grateful for the care she had given their lost son and cultivated a friendship with her. And so after these articles came out saying that, you know, selfish Eskimo woman didn't care for dying man, um, the Knight family wrote a series of rebuttals basically saying that this wasn't the Ada that they knew and um, really tried to clear her name. As for Wilhelmir Stephenson, he did not immediately defend Ada. He was now responsible for two disastrous Arctic trips and was likely more concerned about his own reputation. Later, he did claim that he believed her version of events, but he never paid her most of the money she'd been promised, which had huge consequences for her. Ada got married again and had another son named Billy, but her second husband wasn't much better than the first. He tried to capitalize off of her fame, and the marriage soon fell apart. When Ada came down with tuberculosis, she found herself in a painfully familiar position. Yeah, it's it's, it's pretty sad. Um, basically, she spent her entire life fighting poverty. Um, and at one point, actually, both of her sons, she had to place them in a home because she couldn't support them. And so the story that set this whole thing into motion, where she had one son in an orphanage, it played out again. Um, and she was eventually able to bring them home. But yeah, she never experienced any financial security pretty much for the rest of her life. But as, as one kind of happier uh, point to the later story, Ada's second son, Billy, he was really a champion of making sure that people knew about his mother's story. And he was this amazing champion of just making sure that her diary and other resources made their way into the world. And he would petition the state of Alaska, trying to basically get recognition of her as an Arctic heroine. Bennett remained sickly throughout his life and died when he was just 58 years old. Ada later died in a nursing home in Palmer, Alaska. She was 85. And she was eventually buried by Bennett's side. So she, she kind of got her wish in the end. She was with her son. People all around the world have had a fascination for Arctic adventure stories for centuries. But whether it's a race for gold or a race to the North Pole, the protagonists of most of these tales are white men who come north and then return home to be celebrated for their bravery. In these stories, people who actually live in the Arctic are often invisible or exploited. At the most, they can hope to be treated like minor side characters. You kind of have these big grandiose, sexy expeditions of, you know, men are going to go conquer, and then you don't see the invisible underpinnings of all of the resources that they're using to support that. Ada Blackjack is the exception. She got famous. But her survival story didn't begin with the trip to Wrangell Island, and it didn't end when she got home. She persisted through a lifetime of struggle, decades of poverty and disease, an abusive marriage, separation from her kids and her culture. And she didn't make it through all that by conquering something and then emerging on the other side as the triumphant hero. She just refused to give up. 
Hang in there, everybody. Thanks to Tessa Holes for sharing her work with us. She has a whole lot of fascinating projects going on. Check out her work at tessaholes.com. Big thanks to our funders, including the Pulitzer Center, Montana Public Radio, the Park Foundation, the High Stakes Foundation, Newsmatch, and you, our listeners. You can support our work and find out more about all three seasons of Threshold at our website, thresholdpodcast.org. The team behind Threshold includes Angela Swatek, Brooke Artsenyega, Casey Simpson, Eva Kalea, Lynn Liu, and Nick Mott, with help from Michelle Woods, Frank Allen, Hannah Carey, Dan Carreno, Kara Cromwell, Katie DeFusco, Caroline Kurtz, Matt Herlihy, and Rachel Klein. Special thanks to Steve Evans of KPTZ for his help with this episode. Our music is by Travis Yost. ¶¶